soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! I may as well warn you, Bubble Mouth, I'm going to carry a revolver and a trench knife. And if you so much as lay a finger on me this trip, you're going back to France minus a lot of parts you probably value. Well, I can see you don't know what it means to be up to your neck and nuns. It happened on one of them zippity-doo-dah days. What a dog. Yeah, tell us about it, Peg. What a dog. I shut up! Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Welcome to the Film Coterie. I'm Roger Legg, and it is episode 15 for the week of April the 27th, 2017. And I am joined this week on this special, this is going to be our special classic edition of the Film Coterie podcast. Um, My normal co-host, Adam and Matt, are um, out of town and traveling and doing different things. And I'll get to what Adam's doing here in just a second. And also, we're having to record early, and we're actually recording here at my house. So if you hear uh, my dog, Duke, my golden retriever, if you hear him prancing around or barking at the squirrels, you'll know why. But um, we're, we're actually recording early this week uh, because I have to travel out of town as well this weekend. So I am so honored and happy and excited to have a long, probably one of my longest friends, a good friend, one of my best friends from school, and... Uh, the guy, he, this is the kid that grew up down the street from me, and so we got into all kinds of trouble as kids. Uh, it's great to have Kevin Briarly with me this week. Well, hey, thank Kevin. you. Thank you very much. What's happening, man? It's good to have you. It's good to have you on the Film Coterie podcast. Not a lot, but when you said we got in trouble, you made it sound like angels with dirty faces. I mean, you did become a man of the cloth, and you know, I did some. Uh, you know, holdups and stuff like that. It's not true. No, none of that's true. <laughs> I guess we could look at that movie as a parallel of our lives, right? Well, exactly. Except for uh, you didn't get in quite as much trouble as James Cagney No, did. no, no. I didn't. I did not. So, so Kevin, tell our listeners um, a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, kind of what you're into. What makes you a part of our film coterie? Well, uh, my name is Kevin Briarly. I've got uh, a wife and a daughter. Um and I work at the uh, Buxton Inn, if I can go ahead and plug that. Sure, um, absolutely. It's a, a restaurant um, that um, is the oldest um, uh, continually operating restaurant in Ohio, um, 1812. Um, it's a, a great place to stop by and eat and to stay. So there we go. Is, it still, is it still haunted? Yes, uh, it is still haunted. Um, I haven't actually seen any of the ghosts or anything like that. And I think if I did, I'd probably put my two weeks notice in and date it two well, weeks I, ago. Well, I thought and, you would just scare all the ghosts off. <clears throat> well, probably. that probably happened too. That's a, you know, I think business has dropped a little bit since I started there just because the ghosts don't show up anymore. Uh, well, but, w- well, with your love of classic horror films and Adam's yes. love of horror films, we ought to record an episode from the Buxton Inn. That we w- should. That would we be should. very fun, you know? We should. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I bet um, I could get uh, permission for that. That would be uh, a, a lot, lot of fun, fun. wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so why film, Kevin? What, what, what's some of your? Uh, what, let our listening audience know your some of the things you like about film. Well, it, you know, it or how'd start- you get into film? Yeah, yeah, it started back um, when, you know, I mean, when we were growing up, we had three channels, and we were lucky if those worked. Um, you know, we didn't have all the HBO and all that stuff. So there wasn't, you know, you couldn't just turn, turn the, um, TV on and watch anything you wanted to. So, um, I remember my dad when I was quite young, um, bought, uh, uh, Betamax is when beta and VHS first came out and we went to, um, video movie classics and he picked up classic movies, which is the only thing I thought existed at that time because I never <laughs> had been sure. uh, really out to see any, any movies, um, uh, and so I thought those, that was it later on. I found, you know, um, the movies of the time period and stuff. And I did watch those, um, for some time, but I just kept going back to, to those films. Awesome. Um, right out of high school, I started working at blockbuster video and, um, that was another, um, basically a, a outlet, a channel, I should say for me to get into more, of the movies, there was a, the guy that hired me actually was a big fan of classic movies. And um, I remember him actually talking about um, just certain movies and told me I should watch them. I was like, no, I don't think I'd find that interesting or, you know, because there was a certain amount of classic films I liked, but I wasn't really wanting to broaden my horizons. And he told me he'd fire me if I didn't watch them. So I watched them <laughs> and uh, ended up loving them. And that really uh, yeah. broadened my um, horizons yeah. as, far as, and that got uh, you as really... far as movies. Yeah. E- exactly. And it just seemed like every time... I would watch one of those, those, you know, what they consider the classic movies. Um, you know, they were new to me. Um, you know, uh, and e- any classic movie that I haven't seen yet that I watch is a new film to me. Um, but I just find the style, um, the way the studio systems worked, um, the actors, just all of the, the pieces that went into uh, making those films um, just incredible and I you know to be honest I like the actors better than a lot of the actors today um directors as well and just the whole um um, movie making process uh, at that time yeah absolutely well I think we'll get into some more of that in our next segment where we really dive deep into why old movies and we'll talk about some old classic movies and directors and things we're really into I want to also kind of, this is kind of our news and notes segment. And one of the reasons Adam, my other, my permanent co-host is not here is Adam is over uh, this week at his first film festival of the year. This is the movie festival season we're about to enter into. And so uh, Adam has traveled all the way to Mount Hood, Oregon, and he's attending the Overlook Film Festival. Oh. And uh, it's he, he got into the details of what it takes just to get to Mount Hood last week <laughs> on the podcast, which is incredible. But uh, this is kind of a horror film festival this weekend. And so um, he's very excited, and, and he's going to be tweeting out. Uh, if you follow us on Twitter, at The Film Coterie, uh, you can, he's going to tweet some of his the movies that he sees and this and that. Uh, but also the the guest the, the the guest being honored this weekend at at the Overlook Film Festival is the the venerable Roger Corman who has done um, four hundred and thirteen producer credits to his to his name. That's quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> and so when it comes to a movies made, let me just say he's kind of the B class the B movie classic movie B movie horror movie cult hero for for many of us and uh 
A lot of films were were produced in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and so I started to look at his bio, and so I was pulling some stuff off the internet, and it's amazing. Uh, Roger Corman gave first starts or helped to influence or helped to birth the careers of some of these people that you may have heard of. Let me mention some people who got their start or were helped into the business by Roger Corman. A guy by the name of Martin Scorsese. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, he might become a pretty good director if yeah. he, you know, tries, you know. I, 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 you know. Just, sure. Actually, I just watched Goodfellas uh, the other day and still... Holds up, don't it? Yeah, still holds up. Yeah, I did it as a um, decade do-over movie and just oh. incredible, incredible movie. Um, some other people that he influenced, Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, Ron Howard, James Cameron, Joe Dante, Jonathan Demme, uh, Curtis Hansen, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern. Th- these are all guys that he kind of ushered into and helped to facilitate getting their movie career going. And so that just those names alone, just to name a few, are incredible people that he influenced yeah if i'm not mistaken um jack nicholson did his first picture with roger corman yeah he sure did and i'll get to that here in just a second but absolutely uh as as a distributor roger corman brought to america the works of ingmar bergman francis truffaut federico fellini akira kurosawa some some of the guys that really helped to shape a lot of the movies and change american cinema he brought these movies, these foreign films over to America. So his contribution, besides being the B-movie king, right, his contribution to film is pretty incredible as far as his influence. If you had, to, if you just did, you forget six degrees of separation. If you did two degrees of separation, 95% of Hollywood is going to be connected to Roger Corman in some way. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So I thought I would just mention five films. If you've never heard of Roger Corman or maybe you – you probably, I promise you, you've already seen one of his films. You just don't know it yet. But let me mention five films real quickly that are worth your watching if if you want to explore the films of Roger Corman. Number five is Cry Baby Killer. And that is 1958. And Kevin mentioned it as Jack Nicholson's very first film. Definitely worth a watch. How about, uh, um, how about Stallone and uh, uh, David Carradine, 1975? Before Stallone made Rocky, we have Death Race 2000, he was a producer of. Uh, great film. How about Vincent Price, you like horror? How about The House of Usher, 1960, was produced by Roger Corman. How about Little Shop of Horrors, the cult classic from 1960? And then probably my favorite and probably the best, in my opinion, Roger Corman Corman film ever was The Pit and the Pendulum with Vincent Price in 1961. Well, we could have an argument on that one. But uh, (laughs) as far as his Poe series goes, I mean, he's got, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's either seven or eight to his credit. He He and uh, Vincent Price, except uh, for one film that Ray Milland actually did in place of uh, Vincent Price. Uh, The name escapes me right now. But um, yeah, their their collaboration on on the post series uh, was just tremendous. Yeah. Um, so 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 Roger Corman being honored this year, and I'm excited to have Adam. He's going to report back next week's episode all about the film festival. Uh, he has 15 films in his lineup that he's going to get to see over that weekend. None of them have been released yet. They'll all be released over the next year to 18 months. 
And so be excited to get his take on, and they're all right in his wheelhouse. They're all horror films. So uh, that's going to be pretty exciting. I think that's pretty much it as far as news and notes. Adam really does her news. He's the king of that. So I just wanted to drop a few things in here. Uh, you're listening to the Film Coterie. Let's take a break and come back, and we're going to really dive deep into why old movies, why classic films. And then later in the episode, Kevin and I are going to have a little banter back and forth where we argue. We, we're going to introduce a brand new segment called Battle of the 30s, Battle of the Decades. And so we're going to go to the 1930s, and we're going to argue against two great film years in the 30s. So we'll be right back. You're listening to the Film Coterie. All right, and we are back. And uh, of course, the funniest stuff is in the uh, segment between the music, right? When the, while the music's exactly while the music's playing. And so, you had a quick thought about Roger Corman and, and Vincent Price. Mention that real quick, Kevin. Well, basically, I mean, Vincent Price's career was was doing well, um, but at the same time, um, it, if I'm not mistaken, it was kind of waning a little bit. Um, he got with Roger Corman. Um, they hit it off, but you know, I don't think there was any uh, director that didn't hit it off with Vincent Price or probably any actor that didn't hit it off with Roger Corman. And they were both fan of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, you know, they did, uh, as Roger said, Pit and the Pendulum, which is a really good film. Um, House of Usher probably is my favorite, which was their first. That's a great, um, that is a, I've seen that's a great film. It's just an amazing film. Uh, probably one of my favorites, though, one that I can watch over and over again is uh, The Raven. Yes. <clears throat> and that um, has uh, Boris Karloff. Yep. And um, Jack Nicholson, and of course, early Jack Nicholson, as we mentioned. Um, and it's just, it's done as a comedy. Um, it's just brilliantly done with Vincent Price, a great comedic timing. I mean, when you first watched that guy, you thought, oh, you know, okay. And then to, to see him, you know, at, at his comic. I think some of his comic best, very sly, you know, comic in there, but just, um, you know, a, a project. And what's interesting is when they first started out, they, they were, like Roger said, B budget, um, almost no budget at all, but um, they would make money on these films. Oh, yeah. And so what's interesting, if you watch from the first one on to um, the last one, um, their, uh, the the set actually starts to build up and everything because they were able to it was the same set but they were able to get more furniture and just different things and, and, and like that to to beef it up a little bit i guess and i say. love that you know in, in today's era where hollywood throws money at everything yes exactly and those hundreds of millions of dollars at films there's something powerful about having to be creative <laughs> and not having a bigger budget having to to figure out a way to make it work, you know? Well, then that's, you know, that's going to get in, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but that's what's going to get us into the 1930s is because everything was experimental. Now, true, they experiment things today. You know, a lot of it's computer stuff, and I'm not knocking that, but I mean, you know, these these guys were innovators. They had to, there was nobody oh, yeah. to be like, well, let me look at this and see what, you know, they did. There wasn't anyone. They had to come up with it on, on their own, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So... So in this segment, I thought we would talk a little bit about why we love old movies. And, and you, you know, 
a lot of our listening audience, you know, you and I are, are a little bit older, but we're in our in our forties. Let's just leave it there, right? We were born in the seventies. Well, you and are, some you of us, were. and some of us may be the sixties, but we won't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of us were born born very early in the seventies and very late in the sixties, so we're a little older, and so. A lot of our listening audience maybe can't even relate to this concept of the video store and what that is. You know, in today's today's era of film, you know, you have Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and, and you have Shutter and you have all of these options. You can just flip open a computer, turn on your Roku or your Apple TV, and literally hundreds of thousands of movies are available to you. That was not the case back in the day. I no, remember not at all. I remember when the first VHS and betas came out and they were these massive giant suitcase looking things with a big huge cassette tape in it and you had to put it in and adjust the tracking and fix the picture and oh, yeah. you know and some of us began our first movie experience with our parents left over nine inch black, black and white, 13 inch black and white TV, you know. And so talk a little bit, Kevin, about some of your experience of what it was like and how hard it was to get access to really good quality old films. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing of it is, is I, you know, at the time when I first started out, I didn't know what was out there, you know, just starting in. But then once I would hear about different films and stuff and, and try to get them on VHS, and the, the funny thing is, is, you know, what people don't realize is VHS films, um, when they first came out brand new, were about 80 bucks. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so you had to wait until it would drop down. Now, the new releases would always drop down because people would rent those a lot. Now, the classic movies, um, you know, you would they would drop down some. But I remember uh, buying the Thin Man series, and I think I paid uh, $30, $35 for each one. Where now you can get it on uh, DVD for, you know, fourteen ninety nine. Uh, most likely, I think the whole box set that I got was was less than forty bucks of of yeah. all of the six films. Um, but yeah, it was it was difficult. Um, you know, you you the only way you could get them because you didn't have Amazon or anything like that is go to the video store and look in their classic section and see what they've got. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't so, even so, think so, the library started. So imagine this, right guys. Away. Imagine this. You want to watch a movie. You don't have, and you only have three channels on your TV. But you yes. have this new invention called a VHS player. You had to get in a car, drive down to a brick and mortar store yep. called either it was Blockbuster or it was Video Movie Classic or, or Hollywood Video, Hollywood Video, whatever your video. And there would be this giant store with hopefully hundreds of films. Now, there was a tiny little one in the little town of Pataskla where I grew up, a little teeny small store. I, I can't even remember the name Marquee of it. Video. Marquee Video. Yes, that's right. Can you tell we grew up in the same town, right? Oh, yeah. And so I remember we would scour and look, and they would, you know, you'd look, look, and you'd find this gym, and then you, you would shell out 20 bucks, 15, 20 bucks. You might get three films, four films, you know. And, yeah, well, uh, in a lot of the places, uh, I remember uh, Video Movie Classics, I believe the membership was 50 bucks just 50, to be able to just rent. Just to be a member, you had yeah, to, to pay get 50. a card to rent. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and so, and then um, you already paid like you know what six hundred dollars yeah. for the player. Now you're shelling out another fifty, and you know <laughs> we went through a lot to to watch these classic movies. Absolutely, and watch any movies. And so there was such an appreciation, and and I remember many a nights at my house or your place where we would just pop some popcorn and we would get four or five of these old classic movies and we would stay up all night. Oh, we would and watch these classic movies. Sometimes my eyes, I'd be rolling the back of my head at that last movie thinking, Oh, that was quick. And you, Kevin would be like, what's well, cause you slept through. Half of it. <laughs> that was, that was true. It wasn't because he was bored folks. It was just basically, um, you know, four in the morning, you get kind of tired, but we would seriously, I would come over and bring films and I don't really, you know, and you can 
elaborate on this. I don't really know how much you were into classic movies until I came over, which I'm not giving any of the credit for because you no. either like it or you don't. No, I, I, I said but, it, I said it on our first or second episode of the podcast. I said I got into classic movies because I had a friend who's now sitting beside me doing this podcast named Kevin Brierly. I had a friend who was always bringing over. I mean, I mean, I remember to this day the first time you brought over Angels with Dirty Faces. Oh, gosh, yeah. And you said, watch this. And then I think we did a double feature and we watched White Heat right after that. Yes, we did. And it was like... This is incredible. I didn't know there were movies that were this good. And so that's kind of what got me into it. And then, then you know, you grow up and you get married. And my wife, she liked classic films. And so I collected, I didn't even collect films at the time, but um, I watched a lot of classic films. But then when I got married, my wife liked Clark Gable. And so we started, and she liked the... Um, uh, William Palmer and Alloy. Oh, so we yeah. collected all those. The Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Oh. We collect. You know, I had in my collection the Marx Brothers and James Cagney's films and some Jimmy Stewart films. And so um, that's what my wife and I would do. A, a big date night for my wife and I back in the early '90s would we we would go out to dinner. We would go to the Media Play Video Store, which was the giant megaplex. Oh, yeah. You know. And we would buy these VHS movies for eighteen dollars, seventeen ninety nine a piece to twenty four ninety nine a piece, and we would collect movies and watch them. And that was our date. That was our date night, you know. Yeah, I remember first um, introducing you to the Marx Brothers, and that was the one film that uh, um, I remember. The first Marx Brothers film that I watched was uh, Day at the Races, and um, I, that's where my boss said, "Rent this, or you're fired." That was the one. And, you know, I, I looked at him, and I laughed, and he didn't laugh. I, I thought, you know, this guy's serious. This guy's <laughs> nuts. Um, so I took it home, and I thought, you know, I don't, I don't really like this kind of movie, which I, you know, again, I didn't know what type of films they were. And I seriously loved it right off the bat. As a matter of fact, he had ordered one, um, which you could do, uh, to buy. And when I got to the store, and it was there, I remember it was the film at the circus with the Marx Brothers, um, it was there on hold for him, then he was going to buy it, and I bought it instead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's ever forgave me for that, but, you know. And, and even the Marx Brothers films, even to this day, 25 years later, I'll watch a Marx Brothers film, and I'll catch something I didn't catch. Oh, you always do. You, you yeah. pick up something. And there's so a lot of people don't realize that, that the Marx Brothers are, um, they, they, they have a lot of political humor, you know, there was a lot of social commentary in their films, you know. There was some intentional and some unintentional. I right. mean, it, it just, um, and we can get into that a little bit more later, but it's it's actually, you know, um, again, some of the writing and stuff like that, and, you know, they had the scripts. And, and, and again, with the Marx Brothers, um, especially in their last Paramount years, they didn't have, um, I think, too much of a choice in, sure. in a lot of the say. But, yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, they're, they're not... You know, because I thought, okay, they're slapstick and everything like the Three Stooges. Now, I'm not putting down the Three right. Stooges. A lot of people love them. Um, but the Marx Brothers, to me, have such There's intelligence. Such smart humor to them. The extreme smart humor. I mean, you may not get some of the jokes for years. And then eventually, you know, three in the morning, you'll wake up laughing. You know, oh, okay, now I get <laughs> well, it. Well, I mentioned on an earlier podcast, you know, Margaret Dumont featured in many of her films, and Groucho always goes off insulting her. Oh, and it wasn't like, it wasn't because he just wanted to insult a woman. She represented 
the social elite, the upper class, the privileged, all of that, and he's knocking them down. He's They're knocking, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's knocking that them down, knocking that whole class down, saying you're not better than us, you know. Oh yeah. And so, great. What other what other old movies? Well, man? real quick, just one one thing because you're right. Groucho <laughs> did insult Margaret Dumont. Um, he always said that. She had no clue, um, the uh, entendres and, and innuendos and stuff like that, that she never got the jokes. Now, I, I don't think that's true um, just because I don't see how she could, first of all, not get some of those jokes. But I think that she was so good and for her acting and everything like that, I think she actually pretended not to. And there, there was an interesting thing where uh, that I read a long time ago where um, uh, somebody came up on uh, – Groucho Marx and, and with his wife and said, oh my gosh, it's Groucho Marx. I'm you know, so glad to meet you and everything like that. And I would love it. And my wife has always wanted this too. I'd love it if you would insult my wife. And Groucho looked at him and said, with a wife like that, you should be able to come up with your own insults. <laughs> uh, as only Groucho could yes, do, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what other films, you know, what other classic, I mean, you know, we're going to get into the 30s in our next segment, but what other films maybe from uh, in the silent era, what what are the films from the maybe the 40s, 50s, what directors, you know, my favorite actor is Jimmy Stewart, so I could go on and on and on. Do you have a favorite actor or do, do you have a uh, favorite grouping of films that would be considered your you know if you had to pick this is my favorite well it's interesting um that you said that because i was thinking that actually not too long ago as i used to have a favorite actor um uh errol flint actually was uh i always said yeah he's my favorite actor and he's still uh, i think a damn good actor very fine actor but anymore i don't have one i think my favorite actor is whatever actor i'm watching on the screen at that time um i used to be favorite you know song favorite everything i still have a favorite movie uh, Vertigo, which that would be a you know three hour uh, session if we talked about that film. <laughs> we could do a deep dive and do a whole podcast oh, on gosh, Vertigo. Yes, we could, we could. But I mean, uh, and it's it's so interesting because Roger and I, we seriously, um, when we do get together, it's like no time has passed. We catch up real quick and then we, you know, banter back and forth about movies like we always have or just anything. And um, it's interesting because I realized about a year or two ago that I was like, my gosh, my favorite. Uh, movies are from the 1930s because I'd always yeah. liked uh, the 40s and the 50s Hitchcock's you know 50s films and stuff and you know then talking to Roger all this time has passed sometimes I think we're like twins almost in the way that his films which I never knew because you know last time I talked to him we were talking about more films like from the 40s and 50s and things like that yeah and to find out that you know that's our favorite decade so uh, that's why I decided down. to come over <laughs> hands down for me you know <laughs> yeah. I, and uh uh, I, I would put that day. I could. I think I could argue that decade against any other decade in film history. And finally, we would be on the same side for once. Yes, instead yes. of arguing against each yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, we, if we did that, we'd, there'd be silence the whole time because we wouldn't argue that one. Well, we'll get into some arguing here shortly. Oh, as, I'm sure as we, we will. Do, as we do our Battle of the 30s segment. Uh, what directors? Uh, you mentioned Alfred Hitchcock. You know, mm -hmm. if somebody has never heard of Alfred Hitchcock, no. and you guys have to understand something about Kevin. He's not sitting here with a computer. You know, when we shoot the show, we all have computers and we got to go to IMD. We got to do the Kevin, this is all straight out of his gray matter. I don't know how you do this, man, but <laughs> it just blows me away. But when we talk about Hitchcock, if somebody has never heard of Alfred Hitchcock, how would you sum up him as a film director? And then give us give us a couple three movies that you absolutely should see to introduce yourself to Hitchcock. 
Well, the thing with Hitchcock is um, he's an innovator. I mean, that, that's, I think the first thing you've got to say, um, he didn't uh, give a damn. I think that's the second thing you've got to say. He wanted to make films his way. Um, when, you know, in the, um, when he first started out, he did uh, actually 10 silent films. Uh, one is Lost. Uh, the BFI has recently just um, um, restored all of those films. Unfortunately, they have not made it to uh, DVD or Blu-ray yet. And it's, it's, it's kind of a battle, if they ever will, because, and the reason I say battle is because there's so many people that helped get these through. It's just like the legal entanglements is going to be yeah. Who owns terrific. The rights? Who owns the rights yeah. and stuff like that. But Hitchcock, you know, he, he basically made films his own way, um, you know, especially in, in, in England and everything like that. Um, had some great films, considered one of the first... Um, you know, horror films, at least in Britain, uh, um, uh, probably would be um, The Lodger. I believe it was 1927. I could be wrong on that. But um, he just, um, you know, did a lot of films, uh, basically had some good ones. I mean, if you're going to take a look at early Hitchcock, I definitely suggest um, 39 Steps, uh, The Lady Vanishes, um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, the yeah. first version. Um, and then when he got to um, um, London, it was a Selznick deal. Uh, David Selznick and Myron Selznick, who wanted you know to to get him over here, and um, which that's what he wanted. He knew that's where the money was. He was a very smart man as far as that. And um, you know when he got the Selznick deal, he realized that Selznick was going to stand over his shoulder all the way. So he did everything he could to avoid that. Um, the other thing I like about Hitchcock, uh, real quick, is just the fact that he was so good at um, getting around the um, the um, what am I trying to say the production code the the yeah, um, yeah. Breen's office and the, the things like yeah. that. Yeah. So he found out pretty quick. You know when they would say, "Okay, you can't have this in your film," um, he would write in the script something that they would never ever allow. He didn't even want it in the, in the script himself, but then they would pass up the stuff that they probably would have cut out because they're looking at the, the <laughs> He was smarter than the Hayes code yeah, or whatever. He, yeah, he know. outsmarted them. Yeah, he outs, he outsmarted them <laughs> and came up with so many different techniques and um interestingly enough is he is the uh, first one to do a uh, a talking picture in um England that was their very first which was called Blackmail. It was first done as a silent film. And then after that, um, they're like, okay, you know, it's 1929 at this point. Jazz Singer came out in 27, and, and uh, England was like, well, we've got to jump on board, and they got Hitchcock to do the first one. Once again, folks, walk-in encyclopedia here. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin just pulls this stuff out of the gray matter. I don't know how, I don't know how you do it, my friend. So, so you mentioned a couple. Uh, any other Hitchcock films that you, that you would totally recommend? Yeah, well, when he came to um, America um, – his first film uh, off the boat was Rebecca. Um, he actually was supposed to do, uh, and one of those uh, was Selznick, the Titanic, believe it or not. Right. Um, but um, it didn't work out for uh, whatever reason, um, you know, time, budget, that type of thing. And the interesting thing, he was supposed to make, he had, a, I think, a seven-year, he did, seven-year contract with Selznick and only ended up doing, um, a, a, I think, three, if I'm not mistaken, because he got loaned out. Um, cause as soon as other studios saw Rebecca, they're like, we want this guy, you know? Right. And so Selznick was, you know, would get involved in other projects and Hitchcock was elated. He was happy about that because then he could go to another studio and not have Selznick, you know, sending him memo after memo, which was Selznick. That's what he was known for is sending uh, these directors. Yeah, very much into micromanaging. Oh, his directors. big time. And, and, big and time. you have to realize this is a Hollywood system 
that really was run like a factory. You had your it head was, honchos. It was called, yeah, pretty much they call it the film you factory. Know, it was, it's called the yeah, film factory for, for a reason. reason. yes. Yeah, and they would literally view directors and actors as property of the studio, and they would loan them out. They'd just tell them, hey, you're going to go, you know, we're going to sign you for five pictures. Now you're going to go over here. You're going to be under contract for five years with us. And besides your five pictures, you're going to go over here and do this. You're going to do that. And you're going to do this. Yeah, even if you, you know. weren't working on a picture, you still showed up to the studio because yeah. uh, they would have. Because I remember Jimmy Stewart actually telling the story where um, you know he was he was basically saying that yeah they're not having me on this film, um, but they still have to you still have to show up at the studio. So you know he's like I'd take dance lessons or you know whatever, um, you know to because I might be in a, a musical. I mean this is early on. Uh, later sure. on, of course, Jimmy Stewart got to choose, you know, stuff. But early in the in the '30s, he's, you know, and he was in some musicals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, but I mean, as far as yeah, Hitchcock. I mean, obviously, you can go through um, Rebecca uh, Notorious Spellbound is one of my uh, favorites from uh, the '40s. Um, you know, and then you can get on into um, you know the the '50s with uh, Rear Window, oh, yeah. uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much, the second yeah. version, um, North by Northwest, <clears throat> and of course everyone that knows Hitchcock, and probably the one that they will um, relate most to is Psycho, right, uh, from 1960, um, and The Birds probably, but you know he's got a whole his whole catalog, and and um, I actually uh, started uh, with his sound films because again you can get his. Um, um, silent films, but they're really in bad condition. Uh, you yeah. know, there's there's no really good prints until they put put those out. But um, start with uh, his first talking picture, which was Blackmail, on up to Family Plot. Um, so Blackmail is 1929, Family Plot is 1976, um, and just see the man grow and see the. Wow. I mean, they don't call him the master of suspense for nothing. Yep, absolutely, awesome. So that that gives you a little taste of why we love old films, classic films. And I just love, I love some of the genres. I love film noir. I mm. love Western. Um, uh, I love, I love the, 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 the dramatic films of the, of the thirties and forties and fifties and sixties. Just, just some great, just, just some great uh, uh, movies that are worth your time, especially black and white film. People say, I don't, you know, how could you ever watch a black and white film over a collar film? Yep. And I tell them, My seven-year-old daughter asked me that the other day. (laughs) She's grounded. (laughs) You know, and I tell them, well, you've never seen a properly shot black and white film. You know, because a lot of the movies, granted, from the 30s, uh, were shot more like stage productions. You know, they were shot with stages in mind. But you start to get into Orson Welles and some of the film noir and some of the amazing um, films that, that are shot in black and white where the streets are wet and, you know, and it's just the, the, the lighting and everything. They're just incredible. The atmosphere. The atmosphere. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. They have incredible atmosphere. Kevin, do you want to speak at all to the black and white as a genre? And maybe some of your, uh, if you had a film or two that you'd say, Man, you need to see if you, if you think black and white films are not as good as color, you've not you better watch this film. You know, check this film out. Um, well, Hitchcock again, the way he used lighting. There's certain things that you can do in black and white that you cannot do in color. Um, when it got to uh, the 50s, um, even the 60s, <clears throat> there was a lot of um, um, you know directors that still chose black and white. <coughs> Again, color yeah. was still more expensive, but it, it's the sh- it's, it's the shades of gray that you can get. It's the certain lighting that you can get. I would say one of the best 
um, again, probably would be to have and have not. Um, Absolutely. And the big sleep. Yep. Um, I, I would throw out into that category the third man, 1949. Orson Welles, yes. Yeah. That's on the one. Waterfront, 1954, I think is a is a, an incredible black and white film. Metropolis. Metropolis started 19- off the whole entire science fiction, 19... Yes, 27. 27. Yeah. Fritz Lang, I believe. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And then, of course, Psycho and some of the ones we've right. mentioned already. Yeah, so. now Hitchcock, uh, now the one reason the studio wanted to make it black Citizen and white Kane, the, how could we ever look? I mean, for me, oh, yeah, one of, of the course. greatest films of all time, Citizen Kane, you know. so. But yeah, yeah Psycho was, was, was supposed to be, um, you know black and white and Hitchcock used a, a small budget for that film but again the studio was happy because of the shower scene with the blood and everything they thought color even even then would be a little bit too much for that yeah. but yeah Citizen Kane I mean wow what there a goes film. you know there goes another two hours <laughs> there goes of another two hours <laughs> of discussion absolutely well I think I think that's going to give our listening audience a little taste of why we love old films why don't we take a break and come back and then we're going to get into our battle of the decade and we're going to argue the 1930s, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about how we're going to lay that out, and that'll probably be a future segment that we do on a regular basis, at least for a while. So you're listening to The Film Coterie. We'll be right back after the music. All right, and we're back, and you've been listening to the Film Coterie podcast, and uh, this is the classic edition of the Film Coterie. Normally, we cover uh, modern films, and we review a movie that we're watching this week, and so this is a little different take. This is a little more, maybe more editorial style coverage of film, where where we're, you know, Kevin and I are taking kind of a deep dive, looking at classic films, and in this segment, I thought it would be fun uh, he and I, both of our favorite decade of film is the 30s. We both love the 30s. And, and, and of course, for me, I just automatically think 1939 is the greatest year of film ever in cinema. Funny critics think that, too. <laughs> and there's a critic or two that would agree with me about that. Yeah, most yeah. of them. <laughs> and so I said, wouldn't it be fun if we took, like, 1939 and we put it up against another year in the 30s to see how the films are comparably, right? And uh, um, I thought we would we'd go back and forth, and I asked Kevin to pick five films from another year, and it probably would have been more fair if I had said pick fi- any five films from the 30s besides 1939. Uh, but uh, I picked five. I picked what I consider, and these are not my maybe my favorite films from 1939. But they're films that I think are the best films from 1939. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but you know, aesthetics. There's things you like more than other things, right? But yeah. I, if I if I have to put five films in a time capsule or five films in a spaceship that I'm shooting to the other side of the galaxy from 1939, these are the five films I'm going to put in there, and then we'll mention some honorable mentions. And then what we'll do is we'll throw these up on the website and have our listeners vote to see which year they think is a better year for film, uh, 1939 or the year that Kevin picked. Which is 1935. 1935. So there you go, fans. It's 1939. And I'll send everybody $5 who votes for me. (laughs) Give you the address after the show. Versus 1939. And so... (coughs) 
<clears throat> let's just go ahead and, and let's just mention our five films. I'll do one, then you do one. Now, you can do them in any order you want. I'm going to start with my fifth film, and I'm, I'm going to build down to my first film. And so uh, let me just go ahead and, and pull up. I've got some stuff here on these films. Um, my number five film of 1939 is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame, if you want to be more correct. And that, of course, stars the venerable Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara. And this is an amazing film. Uh, it was, um, I'm trying to remember who directed it. Maybe William, yeah, William Dieterly directed it. And uh, just an incredible horror film, classic horror monster film. I mean, um, uh, just... I'm a huge fan of Charles Lawton to begin with. Um, and I actually previewed a movie that is a big favorite of yours <laughs> that stars a certain man named Errol Flynn. Can you guess what that movie might be? <laughs> I, saw, I, I fell asleep. What? Char Charles Lawton <laughs> and Errol Flynn. <laughs> Charles Lawton and Errol Flynn. Um, oh, my gosh. I think you've stumped me. Okay, you're going to have to just... Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not telling you. Then. I, well, of course you're not. <laughs> I'll think of it before the show's over, hopefully. It has something to do with... Uh, uh, um, anyway, let's move no, on. No, no, it has something to do with... Well, give me a hint, man. Uh, the High Seas. Am I messing up the movie? I think you've got the wrong film. Do I, I have the wrong film? You've got the wrong film, brother. Um <clears throat> I don't think Lawton and Flynn ever made a film together. Oh, they did, didn't they? I no. thought Charles Lawton was... No, I'm missing up. You're the thinking captain, of... I, the captain is not Charles Lawton. Yes, he was, wasn't he? Let me look and it up. What... I signed it to Matt to watch in our, in our decade do-over. Hold on. Let me look it up here. I think you're, I think you're right. I think you're... Hold on. Let me look it up here. Oh, this is hilarious. Yeah, it wasn't Mutiny on the Bounty? No, Mutiny on the Bounty was no, Clark was Gable, your wife's favorite. Good job. Clark Gable, Good that's job. right. Oh, my gosh, I'm so yeah, sorry. Clark you're sleeping Gable. on the couch tonight, it was probably. It was Charles Lawton, though. Yes, it was Charles, Charles Lawton. Lawton and Clark Gable. Yeah, a, a great film. One, I think, <laughs> I mean, would you, uh, you know, I mean, everyone loves Gone with the Wind and everything like that, but, uh, you know, to, to watch Clark Gable and Mutiny on the Bounty, incredible film. Would you agree with that? I, I agree 100%. Good, because yeah. that film's 1935. <laughs> But anyway, so my first film is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. What's your first film, Kevin? Uh, my first film, uh, before I tell you my first film, I want to ask you, when you think of musical, now maybe not right now, um, but maybe when we were first starting to get into movies, what, what would you think, or what era would you think? For music or musicals? Musicals. musicals. The 30s, like the Ice Follies. and uh, No, I mean like years ago. Maybe you did. Maybe you did. I mean, what I thought of is Gene Kelly. Singing um, in the Rain. Singing in the yeah, Rain, of absolutely. course. Even the Fred Astaire movies Fred that Astaire, were made. Ginger I mean, Rogers. My favorite musical still is probably The Bandwagon with yeah. Fred Astaire. But those as are, far as those that are late 30s, early, mid-40s. Mid those are mostly 40s, though. 
The ones I just mentioned? Yeah. No, those were 50s. Those were all 50s. Like uh, Singing in the Rain came out in 1952. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Gene Kelly. But when you talk about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. No, the, those were all the 30s. Those were all those the 30s. Those were all the 30s. Their last one done in 1939. Yeah. But I'm talking about Fred Astaire's movies such as um, Daddy oh, Long Legs yes. and all that. Yeah. That's the first musicals I ever got into okay. were, those, were those types of films. And sure. I thought that's what a musical was. And the brilliant, brilliant. I mean, Technicolor, you know, all over the place, splashing everywhere. Um, you know, Gene Kelly, I mean, and they're still wonderful films. Well, I didn't realize that there were other musicals. I mean, because like I said, for a while, I would just latch on to one thing. I'm still guilty of doing that, but, and, you know, there we go. So I found um, a, a guy by the name of Busby Berkeley okay. um, who did uh, these incredible, incredible movies, which I, I, anyone that knows anything about cinema and, um, and would watch a Busby Berkeley film, tell me how they do it. Because um, there's still critics today that don't know how. Yeah. Um, Gold Diggers of 1935 um, yeah. is one on my list. And I'm not uh, totally going in order here either. Um, I, I've, not seen, I've not seen Gold Diggers, but I've heard amazing. It's on my cue to watch amazing things about it. And the reason um, uh, that I pick it is um, because... Uh, <clears throat> Busby Berkeley first started out, uh, you know, he'd made some movies, but his his, his big hit was Forty uh, Second um, Street in 1933. Right. Um, right after that came Gold Diggers of 1933, and right after that came um, Footlight Parade um, in 1933. And if you watch them, the musical numbers, most of the film is, you know, you set up your plot. They're like backstage musicals. And you uh, really get going, and then usually the half hour would be these musical numbers, usually about three big musical numbers. Um, and the camera shots, I mean, they call him basically the kaleidoscope man. I mean, he did so many geometric oh, yeah. shapes and everything yeah. with that. Um, Gold Diggers is important, I think, because the other three that I mentioned, uh, before I mentioned films, um, he didn't direct. He directed the, uh, the dance sequences, choreographed them, that, that type of thing. Well, Gold Diggers was um, his first... Um, time directing the whole entire film. Um, and his films usually, well, I think all of those um, uh, Busby Berkeley golden era, uh, Dick Powell was, um, you know, his, his main main guy, a very good crooner at yeah. the time. Um, and uh, the, um, it actually won. Um, and I thought this was very interesting because the movie um, Fred Astaire, uh, Cheek to Cheek, had uh, come out with Ginger Rogers. And well, the song "Cheek to Cheek" had come out, and um, and Gold Diggers won for uh, "Lullaby on Broadway," which wow. you know I think a lot of people were, you know, shocked by that. But if you watch it, I mean, "Lullaby on Broadway" is is um, it's the last sequence of the film, and it pretty much is a story in itself um, <laughs> that you could take apart. And it's again just to watch him. He actually tore a hole. This is a true story. He actually tore a hole in Warner Brothers' roof because he couldn't get the camera high enough. Now, if you know, again, when I said, tell me how this guy does this, he also had, I can't remember how many pianos. There was like 27 pianos, and they were light, but there was these girls sitting on them playing, and it was a musical number, and the pianos were white, and the stage was black, and there were guys underneath the, the pianos bent over. You could see their legs, you know, in the shadows, moving these pianos in and out like a kaleidoscope again, back and forth, um, turning. Um, there was one shot where this lady was actually dancing on these, these uh, four pianos, 
and then all the pianos came together to make a big stage. It was like a puzzle coming together. Now, he couldn't do it that way because they were running into each other. So what he did was he had them all together and moved backwards. So he shot the scene backwards to look like they were coming in to make the, the, the um, puzzle pieces fitting in for the whole big stage of the pianos. But it was right. actually in reverse, which made um, the dancer... Um, you know, I, everyone would think, well, it's going to look like she's dancing backwards or whatever, but he knew how to basically had to dance backwards. So when he shot it forwards, there you go. I'm uh, just a genius. So, so folks, genius. There, there you go. You're already getting a taste of what decade battle will be like. I'll mention a movie. I'll mess up the actor and I'll have uh, 30 seconds to say about it. <laughs> And Kevin's going to give you a whole history lesson. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I think it's. I actually think <laughs> it's great, man. Kevin's going to tell you why all the history behind it, which is incredible to me. So, so I had as my number five the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and you had the Gold Dickers of 1935. What's your number four film, Kevin? Um, number four, I'm going to have to go with um, uh, Night at the Opera. Oh, this show is going to last five hours. It's right here. <laughs> um, Night at the Opera was the Marx Brothers' comeback, uh, if you will. Um, their last film um, was Duck Soup in 1933 for Paramount Pictures, um, and it flopped at the box office. It was terrible. The Marx Brothers thought they were done, especially Groucho's like, that's it. Zeppo left. Um, he was tired of being the straight man, and you know he's like, "I've had it. I'm I'm out of there." So it's just the three of them. Groucho. We actually, need to do a whole episode on the Marx Brothers. Yeah, well, that's because true. I, I I would argue that I don't know whether Zeppa really was able to pull off being the straight man compared to some of the other actors. But anyway, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. I didn't say he was the best straight man, but no. he was their straight man, and he was yes. always the romantic lead in their films. Um, but, um, so he had, he had left and Groucho thought about leaving too. Well, one night, um, Chico Marx, um, was playing, um, bridge with a, a man, a young man named Irving Thalberg. Thalberg okay. was, he wasn't the head of, uh, MGM, but he might as well have been. I mean, basically he was such a genius that they gave him clout to basically do whatever he, I mean, whatever he wanted to do. So, you know, he's like, you know, your problem is, is, you know, he was telling basically Chico the problem with, with the films of their last three movies, um, which are considered classics today. And I think they are, but back then that was, that was the problem. So anyways, um, you know, they go in and they, um, um, talk to Thalberg and, and, you know, they get a deal. And they make um, Night at the Opera, which really worked for them because they did a whole entire plot. There was a really good plot. That movie would stand alone without the Marx Brothers and be a good film. What's interesting is you've got a serious film, a serious plot. You've got opera in it. Um, and then you put the Marx Brothers in it just to mess the whole damn thing up. And that's pretty much what they did. I mean, how, I mean you put the Marx Brothers in an opera. Okay, you know, as far as anti-establishment, uh, uh, you know, there you go. And, and you know, the Night at the Opera is a great film, but critics are really split on it just because for some, and for me too, to an extent, does the opera really work with, does that clashing of styles work? Some people think it's brilliant. Um, I might argue it's not my favorite Marx Brothers film, but it definitely is. I mean, I love all the Marx Brothers yes. films. You see what I'm saying? But yeah. Oh, it's not my favorite either, actually. Yeah. What, but, is, your, what is your favorite, by the way? Coconuts. The the very first one? Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. What's mine? <laughs> Coconuts? Mine, <laughs> no. <clears throat> Mine's probably... Um, 
Horse Feathers, probably. Horse Feathers is great. But again, too. again, it's Marx Brothers is one of those things. It's almost yeah. my favorites. Whatever one is on the exactly. screen that I'm watching I'm, at the time, I'm it's, the it's hard to hard to say. So, so your number four is Night at the Opera. My number four is. The John Ford classic Western starring John Wayne. It really made him as a kind of brought him to the forefront. And that's Stagecoach. Yes, very and, good film. Uh, it's a great film. It is interesting because it's, uh, th- there, it's a stagecoach as it travels across the West. And uh, they're trying to avoid the, 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 the bitter enemy Geronimo, the Indian that's attacking and, and, and pillaging the stagecoaches. And along the way, the, the, the participants inside the stagecoach begin to open up and you learn stuff about them. Discoveries are made, has some incredible visual effects for that time. Um, and it really just John Ford on top of his game, John Wayne stepping into becoming John Wayne. I mean, he'd done stuff before this, obviously, but really this was him now an iconic American star after this movie. So my number four movie is Stagecoach, 1939. Now let me do my number three movie. And um, for those of you that know me, this is my favorite film of all time. It's my number one film, but it's only number three on this list. (laughs) And I know what film that is. (laughs) And it's, of course, starring, directed by Frank Capra and starring Gene Arthur and Claude Rains and this tall, lanky guy, by the name of uh, James Maitland Stewart. And so Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and an incredible film. Uh, it's my, it, it's, you know, beloved around the world by, by critics. And uh, in my opinion, should, he should have won the best actor that year. He did not. Robert uh, Donut won for uh, Goodbye, Mr. G- Goodbye, Chips. which is a great yes. film. Yes, it is. And it has one of the most powerful ending scenes in it as well, too. Um, I would give the nod to Stewart, but I'm biased. Hey, what the heck? You know? I would give the nod to Stewart as well. But anyway, so my number three film is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Kevin, what's your number three film? Uh, my number three, well, first of all, again, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I do have to say that is an incredible film. And, and uh, you know, and as far as the Academy goes, um, I think the Academy is great when I agree with them. Anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, well said, my friend. We agree there. Yes, we finally agree on that. <laughs> Um, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, yes. Again, innovation, innovation um, coming up. I mean, this film took quite a bit to make. All star uh, cast. Uh, it was Warner Brothers. Um, it was directed by uh, Max Reinha- Max Reinhardt. Um, and of course, you know, it, it would have won Best Musical Score if it hadn't been for the fact that it was Mendelssohn, and so you can't claim it as, you know, original score, but, sure. you know, with the Mendelssohn music going through it, uh, James Cagney was in it, um, basically showing, you know, that he could be something more than just a gangster. Um, and what's interesting is it's Olivia de Havilland's first film. Um, now, the uh, stage play, this was the Hollywood Bowl actually was doing a production of William Shakespeare's uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it starred um, Mickey Rooney as Puck and um, Olivia de Havilland. And um, they were used in the film. And um, they decided to pick the other actors that were, you know, popular at the time, which included uh, Dick Powell um, and um, uh, Ross Alexander. Um, just a, a, the cast was uh, Frank McHugh was in it. Hugh Herbert, which is one of my uh, favorite comedians of the 30s. 
And just, you know, to watch it again, how did they do that? I mean, right. you know, these cameras were huge. And to take them in the places and things like they did and to have the, the fairies fly over and just you talk about an atmosphere. You really feel to me that you are there in that dream. I mean, it's just it's an incredible film. Incredible uh, awesome. Film. Awesome. All right, that's we're just rapidly running up this list, and uh, man, Kevin is making great arguments for his films. Uh, my number two film is, of course, you already did number two. No, I did number three, Mister Smith. Oh, okay, yeah, you're going did, in a different order. I've did Hunchback. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. You're going backwards. Sorry, Hunchback is number five. Stagecoach number four. Mister Smith was number three. Okay, my number two film on the greatest films from 1939. And the next two, if you can't guess these next two, then you don't you, stop watching movies. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not kidding, folks. Uh. Let me just tell you, Victor Fleming directed both of my number two and number one uh, top films of 1939. Also uncredited on both of those was George Kukar uh, for both of those as well. Uh, my number two film starred a little lady by the name of Judy Garland. And a guy, Frank Morgan and Ray Bolger and the gang and a whole bunch of munchkins and some beautifully shot, the very first film in full color. And that is, of course, the great classic, The Wizard of Oz. Yes. What do you think about The Wizard of Oz, Kevin? Uh, it's it's um, fun to watch when you're young. Um, you know, and I, and I love to sit there and watch it with my daughter. Um, but... Um, I, you know, through the years, I, I, again, it's, I watched it when I was young and then, you know, as I got older and everything like that, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty good story. And I think what makes it so good is they do start out in the sepia tone, um, which for those of you who don't know, is kind of, um, almost a beige, orangish, brownish, brownish. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Earth, it's earth. Tones. Earth. Yes. But good way to. Describe it, and then of course, you know, when she opens the door after her house lands, and you see the the the, the brilliant Technicolor, and yes, there was, but I mean, I, I would easily match that up against Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream coming out the better film, I think. Um, I think if you all of a sudden, when they got to the forest and everything, and if you did color, I think uh, it, you know it'd be more appreciated today. Sure. I think I think the whole color thing um, added to it. I, I think if uh, if Wizard of Oz was done in black and white. I don't think we'd be sitting here and talking about it today. Wow. Bold statements there. Kevin coming out swinging with both fists, man. I, I love The Wizard of Oz, and I cannot, every time it's on TV, it's one of those I just watch it to the end. I love it. Love the story, the timeless values it teaches. I just love the, I love the film. I love the music, the score. Man, Judy Garland singing. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just great, great, great film. Classic. Your number two, Kevin? Number two is going to be um, a film that um, broke all uh, groundbreaking um, history as far as horror films go. Uh, and that would be The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, one of the reasons for that is it's the very few films, it's a sequel to Frankenstein, and it's, it's one of the very few times that um, a sequel is better than the original. Um, directed by James Whale, um, and, and Whale did not want to do a sequel. He was totally against it. Um, but you know, once they let him do it, and he right. he got rid of a lot of script writers and stuff like that. He did a lot of his own um, scripting and that type of thing. Um, 
and uh, Boris Karloff was in it. Karloff, uh, first time he speaks, he did not. He, he played a pantomime in the first one, you know, which was funny. 1931 is an early talkie, and, and Karloff says nothing. But in this one, he talked, which he actually did in the uh, novel by Mary, um, Mary Shelley. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so he actually, um, you know, speaks in this one, and it's got cu- uh, great humor, um, rather flamboyant humor. I, I don't know if uh, you know James Whale was homosexual, and there was a character in there um, played by Ernest Thesinger, um, Dr. Pretorius, who was extremely flamboyant. So you had a great mixture of, of comedy um, with that, and then, of course, the scene with um, the monster um, and the hermit where he does learn to talk and, and he actually cries. I mean, it's just such a deep scene. Um, and then the end when the bride rejects him. I mean, it's just, I could go on, of course, on yeah. and on again about this film, but it, it is, you know, uh, probably, you know, and it has inspired so many you know, uh, films um, uh, since then. And what's interesting, really quick, because we were talking black and white, um, the Frankenstein's makeup was kind of a bluish green, okay? Okay. And the reason that they did that is because on black and white film, it would look dead white, which he's a cadaver, so, okay? Now, when actors were playing next to him, they didn't look right, so they had to have almost a reddish makeup applied to their face to be able to look correct. Now, again, innovating style, you know, knowing your, you know, chemistry and just all of that stuff, what's going to look good on celluloid here and to make it work, you know, how they had to, had to do it to make it work for black and white. And if that film was made in color, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about it today. It wouldn't have had the effect. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us to our number one film. And of course, most of you should know what my number one is. It is the highest grossing film of all time. Uh, if you take into effect um, inflation, it is 10 times still the highest grossing film of all time. This is a film when the biggest, the, the five other biggest films of that year, I, I made some notes about it. They, it grossed, um, the highest other films grossed like 9 million, 8 million, 7 million, and 6 million in 1939. And of course, Gone with the Wind, my number one film, grossed $192 million in 1939, which is like insanely incredible to me. I just can't even fathom that and inflated money for today. This is a film, of course, that was directed by Victor Fleming and George Cukor. Um, they had a busy year, Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. That's a pretty intense 12 months of uh, filming, yes. if you must say. Uh, starring, of course, Clark Gable, Vivian Lee, and, and a cast of others. Uh, iconic film, 212-minute uh, running time, uh, intermission. I mean, it, this was an epic. This was the, uh, the, the definitive of what an epic movie is, you know. Um, oh, boy. Look at <laughs> I didn't say a word, pal. <laughs> He's loading up, folks. <laughs> and so this is a film that literally in small towns all over America ran for like three and four years. It literally every weekend people would go and see Gone with the Wind. There are people that would have seen this movie in the theater over a hundred times. I mean, so um, it's hard to argue. Now, is the film perfect? No, it's not really perfect. Is the film really socially acceptable, maybe even for today's standards? Probably not, you know. But a lot of these films probably wouldn't be socially acceptable for today's standards. But if I, I mean, if I'm going to show space aliens on the other side of the galaxy, what is the best we could do in 1939? I have to put Gone with the Wind at the top, in my humble opinion. 
Kevin, thoughts, rebuttal, thinking that direction? No, I mean, Gone with the Wind is a, a you know, it is a very important film. Um, again, I have to say that both Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz, um, their popularity in 39 would not have been as good if they were done in black and white. I mean, and, and that's fine. I mean, that's an okay thing. Um, you know, because it was the, the technicolor of the, of, you know, um, and as a story, yes, it's, it's, it's an epic film. Um, it's, it's a great film, but it's, it's, um, I know it's going to come as a shock, but it's a, a, maybe a one or two timer for me. I mean, it's not a film that I'm going to want to watch. And I think, I think there are other people that would agree with you. Probably one of my co-hosts on this show, I won't mention any names on a regular basis. might agree with you there. No, it just (laughs) became my new best friend. (laughs) Okay, Kevin, what is your uh, number one film of 1935? Okay, number one film of 1935 um, is a film that, um, let's just start with RKO owning the rights to it. Um, And a little director by the name of John Ford wanted to do this film. He had been wanting to do it for five years. Um, He knew who he wanted uh, as his uh, male lead, which, which was uh, Victor McLaughlin. And the film is called The Informer. Um, it was, let's just go off the Academy Award. And like I said, I, I like the Academy Award when I agree with them. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture, um, Best Editing. Um, it did not win Best Picture. Um, actually, Mutiny, Mutiny on the Bounty won Best Picture. Which is the best film from that year. I can't believe it didn't make your top five. But anyway, we'll forgive you. <clears throat> and then I, I could ask why, but... Uh, <laughs> it, it better be in your honorable mentions. But anyway, go ahead. Um, it won Best Actor, Victor McLaughlin. It won Best Director, John Ford. It won Best Screenplay. won Best Musical Score by Max Steiner. And the film it was done on a shoestring budget. Um, John Ford told yep. RKO that you know he would definitely do it on a shoestring budget. And to watch this film... It's one of the few, I mean, it's an early, like I said, it's 1935, folks, but you've got a guy that is um, troubled throughout the, I mean, you feel his pain. Real quick, I mean, the plot basically is he's thrown out of the IRA um, for not um, killing a black and tan British officer. Um, He goes to see his girlfriend, finds out that she is now making money um, being a prostitute. They want to get out of Ireland. Uh, this is, takes place in 1922, by the way. Um, and so the only thing that uh, McLaughlin does, not being so bright, um, is informs on his friend, um, who the British are looking for. Um, his friend gets killed, and um, McLaughlin feels the regret and has to go through the rest of the film trying to get over this. What's interesting is, is they, they pull the um, 20 pieces of silver thing because it was 20 pounds um, to turn his friend in. Um, so there is that almost, you know, it was, it's definitely the overtones of, of Judas and um, Christ in that, in that situation. And he actually ends up drunk. He ends up spending too much money at certain places. People start to realize that, you know, he's the informer. Um, he feels guilty because this was a friend of his. I mean, you know, if, if if Roger here was, you know, if I needed money and Roger did something that the people were after, um, depending on how this voting goes, I might turn him in. Maybe not. I, <laughs> I don't know. But um, and and so it's just 
you know, and the whole thing is just, the atmosphere is just great. It's just an amazing film. And to, to watch McLaughlin just fall apart little by little because of what he's done for 20 pounds. And the fact by the end of the film, uh, you know, not to give anything away, but, um, you know, I, it's still a great film to watch and I'm not giving everything away. He pretty much goes through the whole 20 pounds. Yeah. Well, spoilers, you know, we don't allow spoilers unless it's been over two years. So I think all okay, these so, films okay, all right, are safe. I was going to say spoiler you know, alert. It's crazy because this is the only film on your list I have not seen. You've and never seen The Informer? I've never seen The Informer, oh. so I'll have to queue it up and watch it. I'm sure you've seen all five So you've five seen of, Gold Diggers of 1935? Yes, I think you've seen all five of mine, pretty sure, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, let me really quick. Hunchback of Notre Dame versus uh, Lon Chaney, uh, silent one. So... Charles Lawton versus... I, I love... The silent one is great, um, but but I, there's just something, some kind of a presence and a physicality that Lawton brings that Lon, Lon Chaney does as well, too. I'm not I'm not taking anything away from it. Oh, it's hard for me to pick. Apples and oranges. Two. It's apples and oranges. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree yeah. with that. Um, Lawton, Alfred Hitchcock said this. Um, he said the, the three hardest things to photograph are speedboats... Um, fast moving trains and Charles Lawton. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just recap real quickly. My five films are The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Stagecoach, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind. And for Kevin, we have The Gold Diggers of 1935, Night at the Opera, Midsummer Night's Dream, Bride of Frankenstein, and the informer so what we're going to do is uh when we come back in our final segment we're going to do coming attractions and kevin and i are going to draw for our year when we do battle of the decades 1940 we'll draw and we'll know in our next classic edition episode what film we're going now, to be going now real over. quick before we yeah. go did you want to mention some honorable oh, mentions yes, of, uh, yes. well, of um, give me real quick kevin uh two one one to three of your honorable mentions from 1935 or I can oh. go first if you want. It don't matter. Go first. Go ahead. Okay. My three films, honorable mention, uh, uh, Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Dodge City, which I think is a great Western, and I know is one of your... Yes. You, uh, you, you yeah. enjoy that I film will, very much? I will agree. Uh, Mr. Goodbye, Mr. Chips, of course, wrote oh. Robert Donnett, who won yes. for Best Actor, and yeah, maybe deserved it, so it was a great performance. <laughs> it's tough, man, I know, trust me. You know when you go into a film hating it, because you know Jimmy Stewart lost, your favorite actor lost, and you're just convinced you're going to hate this acting performance. I can make you feel better about this really quick, okay? <laughs> the Academy Award, like I said, I like them when I agree with them. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, we'd agree, is one of the best directors of all time. Yes. Never won Academy Award. There you go. And so I watched Goodbye, Mr. Chips, hating Robert Donnett before I'd ever seen the film, and ended up in tears at the end of that sucker. Yes. And I oh thought, I thought, dang it, you sucker. Yeah, that's a great performance. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant <laughs> and performance. And then, of course, how can, I, how, can I not, how can I leave out Destry Rides again? Yes. That is my favorite Western of all time, so... Yeah, absolutely. So that's three three films for me, Kevin. How about you, 1935? Well, real quick, I want to say that uh, I made a list of the films that you were going to choose from 39, and um, I got them all right but um, one. Uh, Gone with the Wind, of course. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, Wizard of Oz. And then I was, I was torn, and I, I thought, well, you know, what's he going to do? I know he's not going to go for Gunga Den or uh, Only Angels Have Wings, which are two that I would have gone with um, instead of a, a couple of those. Um, 
But I thought you were going to go with young Mr. Lincoln, John Ford and Henry Fonda. I've not seen it. Maybe that's why you didn't go for it. That's why well, I didn't go okay. for it. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, I, 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 yeah, these are movies that I have seen and that I think are the best. If I saw it, I might change my mind. Yeah, that's well, that's true. We're, yeah. yeah, and that's the other thing. Going through, um, you know, because my homework was pretty good. I had to go from 1930 to 1938 <laughs> to pick a year. I haven't slept in three days, folks. Oh, man. Um, I'm pretty tired. But, um, you know, going through that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. You know, I got to see this. I got to see that. So I've got a huge list of movies that I need to watch. <laughs> and, you know, some of them shock me that I haven't seen. Anyways, honorable mentions for me from 35. Um, Oh, I get there. There's so many. Um, Mutiny on the Bounty definitely is is one. Sure. Um, the reason that I didn't pick it, it has been years since I've seen it, and so there wasn't enough for me. I assigned to, it. I assigned it to Matt for his movie homework a few weeks ago. With Errol Flynn and Charles Lawton, yeah, good job. Yeah, with Clark Gable <laughs> and Charles Lawton. <laughs> I do that all the time. Though. Oh, I do man. that all the time. I, it uh, sucks getting old. But I'm just going to read off some of these great films. I know you said a couple, but, you know, I mean, there's Anna Karenia. Um, there's The Crusades. There's David Copperfield. Oh, David uh, Copperfield's great. The Lives of a Bengal Lancer. Um, uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, we mentioned. Uh, Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Top Hat. Um, oh, Top Hat. I, I mean, just, you know, an, an amazing... Amazing lineup and, and the list. I like I said, I could go on and on, but those those films are just nineteen. Like I said, nineteen thirty five. In my opinion, looking and I know we just chose five films, folks, but you can also go out there and look yourself and see <laughs> how many good films came out. And awesome, uh, you know. And and I suggest watching all of them if you haven't yeah, seen them they're, they're, and make yeah. your own opinions. Absolutely. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get into coming attractions. You're listening to the Film Coterie Podcast. All right, and we're back, and uh, this is our last segment, Coming Attractions, and uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, uh, do our draw for our next episode of the classic edition of the Film Coterie Podcast, where we're going to explore the 1940s. Now, this is our first classic edition episode ever, and so we'll probably tweak this a little bit, and we'll have some better ideas uh, down the road, but I love this idea that we're going to battle. We're going to, we're going to this time, we're just going to randomly draw a year. And I've got to pick five films from that year. Kevin's going to randomly draw literally out of a hat, and he'll have a year. And then um, we'll have to battle over those five. So yes, we will shake it up. I'll go ahead and draw first. All right. And the year that I drew was 1940. Kevin, how about you? Damn, I know which films he's already going to pick. Okay. Um, five years later, 1945. Nice. Let me see your. Let me see yours. Let me see yours. Make sure it says 40. Yeah, <laughs> I know you too well. Yep. Okay, he's got 40. I've got 45. Awesome. And so, just as a sneak peek, let me give you just a quick uh, look at those. Doing this on the fly here. Uh, 1940, we've got Rebecca, The Philadelphia Story, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Grapes of Wrath. I'm liking my year already. Yeah, yeah, I am too, actually. 1945, we have Mildred Pierce, Spellbound, The Lost Weekend, 
um, Anchors Away, uh, Scarlet Street. I'm liking my year already, my friend. But we'll oh, <laughs> I think I got you. <laughs> but we'll see what we've got. So make sure you stay tuned to the next episode of the Film Coterie Classic Edition where we battle the 40s. It'll be 1940 versus 1945. And I think it would be fun um, if we can uh, also do our predictions of what films we will pick from that. Kind yeah, like I mean, what you did yeah, today. Yeah, because I, I picked what uh, films you would pick. So... Um, yeah, be fun. Yeah. So just wrapping up here, folks, we're going to kind of bring this thing to a close. I want to remind you that uh, next weekend we'll have Adam's report. He will be back from the Overlook Film Festival and excited to hear all about that. And we're going to do our movie review will be the new Guardians of the Galaxy uh, uh, Volume 2, which we're very excited about. We loved the first movie. Looking forward to the second one. Are you a fan of all any of the Marvel movies at all, Kevin? Have you been into that many of them? Not really. Not, okay. not, 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 uh, not really. Okay. Well, Kevin's, like I said, he's kind of, he's into classic films and, uh, God bless him for it. Yeah, well, I haven't got that far yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, I'm not out of the thirties yet. Kevin, any, any final thoughts here? Thanks so much for being on the podcast with me this well, week. Well, no, I just want to thank you. It's, it's a privilege to be on and to be able to talk about these wonderful films with, uh, such a gentleman as yourself. Yep. Oh, it's, I, I resemble that remark. I figured you did. <laughs> You resemble it quite well. <laughs> Too bad it's not true. Oh, man. And I think we're going to actually, we're going to try to do a film uh, coterie classic edition with Adam, our other co-host, because you know Adam loves horror. Well, Kevin's, uh, one of his favorite genres is classic horror. Yes. And so we're going to take a trip down memory lane with Adam on a show as well, too, where we talk about uh, classic horror films. Well, anyway, you've been listening to the Film Coterie Podcast. If you'd like to find us, you can go to Facebook and just look up the Film Coterie. There we are. You can email us at filmcoterie at gmail.com. Our website is filmcoterie.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Film Coterie. So on behalf of Kevin, I'm Roger. You guys have a great week, and we'll see you next time on the Film Coterie Podcast.